morning. Good morning. Sean always says his name, and then he's one of the pastors here. My name is Scott, but I'm not one of the pastors here. Just filling in this morning for Sean. Um, if you were here last week, we started a just a small two-week series on uh, five signs that you might have a wrong view of who God is. How many people were here last week? Okay, some of you weren't. So we're going to spend the first five minutes just kind of doing a quick review um, of what we went over last week. And we started last week off the premise of A.W. Tozer's kind of famous statement that he made, and we sat here and pondered it. Um, and he said this, We tend, by secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we kind of read that, thought about it, asked a bunch of questions just to see, man, is that really true? Because if that is true, which I think it's true, that what we think about God when we first think about him, what image comes to our mind, man, that, that can shape us in various ways. And that can really set some, especially for younger people, can really set the trajectory for the rest of their life in some ways. If you get this mental image, especially if it's kind of this wrong view of who God is, man, it can really shape who you are. And so we started, our foundational scripture was in Exodus. So if you have a Bible or a phone, um, our foundational scripture was out of Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And it's God's self-disclosure of himself, meaning it's the only place in scripture where God describes himself. Like that should be like, whoa, there's a lot of pages in the Bible. There's 66 books. Like that should kind of grab our attention. Like, whoa, this is the one place where God says, hey, this is who I am. And because of that, it's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So if you were to read this scripture when you read this, and then if you were to just start reading through mainly in the Old Testament, you'll see this phrase all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. And so it's the epicenter for a theology of who God is. And I said this last week. Um, there's a great book that, that will expound. I have two weeks, and I'm just kind of reading the verse. Um, but there's a great book called God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. Really dives into this verse. Really just gives you a lot bigger picture of who God is. And one of our former students uh, last week uh, who was here, and, and, I, and she, we, we've known each other for about 10 years. And so she, I, I asked her, I said, we were talking about this scripture. And I asked her, do you ever read that book? And she's like, oh, when you recommended it, I read it five or six times. And it got written all over it. So um, that's just how, how good of a book it is. And if you want to dive into it, um, I think it's well worth, worth the read. So the scripture is 34, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And it says that the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord. And here it is, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness or, or a loyal love, a steadfast love. Um, loving kindness. Verse 7, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and the grandchildren and the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now, rabbis in the Old Testament, or excuse me, rabbis uh, back in the time of Jesus and prior to Jesus, 
describe this as the 13 attributes of mercy. So the Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, and so on. The 13 attributes of mercy. And to kind of grasp what this verse is. So if you think about in the West, the Western church, what John 3.16 is to us in the Western church, that's what this scripture is to the Jews and the nation of Israel. Okay, so again, that should kind of grab our attention. You know, we can sit here and be like, man, what, what do you know about the New Testament? You know, you might not know much, but you can say, I think John 3.16 is pretty important. Okay, um, so it's really similar in value to what we hold, if not higher, um, than John 3.16. I also said this last week. I don't think I really made it a, a, a main point. I just kind of breezed over it. But as we get into these kind of, you know, signs of, you know, might have a wrong view of who God is, I made this statement. I just kind of brushed over, but I want to make this clear that if the truth sets us free, okay, if we're reading Scripture and there's certain truths that, man, set us free, then it's safe to say that a lie will hold us back, Right? So as we kind of go through the next four, we went over one last week. As we go through the next four, just really challenge you to put that up against the scripture, okay? Because God might want to set you free from a lie that you've been believing. And who Jesus, and we'll see this in some of the scriptures we go over today, but who Jesus is and everything he did and who he was, his identity, is rooted in this Exodus scripture. Okay, so last week we went over the first sign that you might have a wrong view of who God is by saying your motivation is motivated, or you're motivated by shame and guilt instead of love. So we went over that last week. If you're motivated by shame and guilt instead of love. So moving on to part two of this week. Number two is you're scared of being outside of God's will instead of trusting that he's guiding you, okay? You're scared of being outside of God's will instead of trusting that he's guiding you. God's will isn't a mystery, okay? Now, some of you are probably like, yeah, it is. It's a mystery. I don't know what his will is. And I get it. There is a level of mystery to God and his will. Like we're never going to exhaust his will. We're never going to exhaust who he is and, and what his plan is. He's never going to show us out front. So we have to be seeking, knocking, asking, reading, praying, discerning, all that. I get it. But it's not a mystery in the sense that you need to walk a tightrope. Like if you're living your life and you feel like you're walking on a tightrope and scared to get out of God's will, like, oh gosh, I hope I'm doing the right thing, I hope I'm doing the right thing, then, then man, you might have a wrong view of who God is. He doesn't, he doesn't operate that way. Um, it's not a mystery in that you walk a tightrope. Jesus told us we truly hope. in Luke 12, 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Okay, so there's some aspect of God that wants to give us the kingdom, wants us to know, wants to, to show us stuff, wants to lead us and guide us. Okay? But it's not a, some, you know, giant puzzle that he just takes a box, throws down 5,000 pieces, and then folds his arm and says, figure it out. Start putting pieces together. Well, can I get some help? Can I? Can you sit with me? Nope. Figure it out. Start with start with the corners. There, I'll, there, I helped you out. You know, 
It's not how he does it. He'll sit down with you, and as you pray, discern, think, talk, you know, man, that's, he'll come alongside you and guide you. It's not a tightrope, okay? Um, one of the statements that somebody made to me when I was in college, it really, really changed my perspective. And this was probably like 20 years ago. And it was so important, so, so life-changing that I'm inserting it here, okay? And this one guy said this. He said, instead of standing there asking God what his will is, he's made it clear in the word that he's already moving. We just need to get on board. I was like, oh, man, that makes sense. So if you imagine a train that's slowly moving at like three miles an hour, right? And there's a big sign on each uh, car that goes by that says, God's will, God's kingdom, get on board. Oftentimes, I think we're just standing there looking at it and going, man, okay, God's will, okay, get on board. So, Lord, what's your will for my life? What, what am I doing? Get, get on board. Just, just get on board with what he's doing, okay? And it's all about the kingdom of God that we're to be on board with which is a whole nother sermon series that would probably take 10 weeks, if not longer, okay? So we just need to kind of get on board with what he's doing instead of just standing there or just walking this tightrope. Chuck Smith, one of the, the founder of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, said this. It's just one of those nuggets I keep tucked in the back of my head. He said, God's past faithfulness, God's past faithfulness demands my ever-present trust in him. Okay, so as I read the word, I see how God has been faithful. He'll never leave me or forsake me. So even in times of confusion, I can rely on the fact that, man, God's been faithful. Therefore, I can have this ever-present trust in him. Psalm 119, 105, you might recognize this. It's kind of one of those often quoted verses, but it says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. And I think that's just this beautiful picture that we can imagine in our minds where you think of just an old school lamp, right? And we're, you know, as we read the word and we're in fellowship with God, we can't see too far out there, but we can see far enough to where we can see, you know, okay, there's the path, okay? And I just need to keep walking, okay? But when you have a lamp and it's dark out, you don't just like take the lamp and then just blindly walk, right? You don't just start walking, right? You need to walk and, and look, and you might have to stop and, and take the lamp and move it around, okay? Keep going this way. So there's like this discernment along with walking with him, but you can trust him that he's guiding you, that he has given you a light, that there is a path. One thing that... Um, if you do get off track, like there's times where honestly, you know, you feel, well, you just feel lost, right? So when I go hunting, um, a lot of times, you know, it'll get dark and then we got to walk back and put our headlamps on and we walk back in the dark and we kind of have trails, okay? We cut out trails and, and some are more uh, better than others. Some are really sketchy. And so, you, and in the dark, you can get turned around real quickly. Um, I know the land really well, but when it gets dark, you don't know which, which way is which, and so sometimes I'll just be walking, and next thing I know, I'm like, I'm running into trees, and I'm looking, and, and I'm like, whoa, there's no path here. So what do I do? I turn around my headlamp, and I go back, and I start looking for cut logs and a main trail. And so I think oftentimes in our walk, we can get off track. We just get busy, life happens, and you're walking on, on the trail. Next thing you know, you're like, where am I? I don't think I'm supposed to be here. God doesn't just abandon you and leave you and folded arms and be like, well, geez, you're on your own now. 
No, man, he's given us signposts in the back to where we can stop, we can turn around, go back, and be like, okay, let's just start at square one. Here we go. So when it comes to like decision making for me, man, that's often what I do. If I go a few days, sometimes three or four weeks, sometimes a couple months, and I just feel like I am lost in the certain decision making I'm trying to make. And I'm just, that's when I'll be like, man, something's off, time out. And I just go back to square one and then go through that process of, okay, God, God, lead me back to the trail. Okay, now guide me, Lord. And then I start moving forward or I stay put. And one of my life's verses for staying put is this. It's found in Exodus. And this really goes along to like just the idea of like God leading his people, trusting that he leads his people. And if you do get out there lost, maybe coming back to this certain place and just sitting and waiting. In Exodus 40, um, if you know that story where Israel is led, led out of Egypt, right? You guys remember how they were guided by God. Does that ring a bell? How they were guided by God through the wilderness and through the desert, okay? There should be an image. Hopefully there's an image that comes to your mind that they were led by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, and it would rest over the tabernacle, Okay? And whenever that cloud moved, the mobile camp would get up and follow the cloud. And whenever it rested, the people would rest, whether it was three days or three months. Okay? So Exodus 40, 36, it says this, In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So all their travels, used twice, all their travels, God led the nation of Israel by his presence. Step back into chapter 33. Here's, here's what Moses plea with God. He says, Lord, the Lord replied, they're in dialogue, and God replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I think that's really important that as God's guiding you and you're trusting in him, leading you and guiding you, that, man, you rest in that. That's faith. There's no sense in being anxious and worried, trusting that he's going to lead you. And you can rest that he's going to guide you. Verse 15, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So, side note, the distinguishing feature that Moses points out, the difference between the Israelites and the rest of the world is God's presence going with them. And I love that plea. I pray this often where I say, God, if you don't go before me, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I think and God is honored by a prayer like that. He's honored by a prayer like that. Okay, number three, you feel a need to defend the gospel instead of reveal the gospel. You feel a need to defend the gospel instead of reveal the gospel. Now, there's nothing wrong with a healthy conversation about faith with somebody who doesn't know Jesus or whatever, um, but the, you know, if there is a, a need that, that rises up within you, it's more of this heart posture that if you feel like this, this knee-jerk reaction to defend the faith, I need to defend Jesus. And it might be a view that, that isn't quite Jesus-like. 
Because Jesus came to reveal the Father, not defend the Father. He came to reveal God's love, not defend God's love. He came to reveal the gospel, not we don't need to defend the gospel. And I know it depends on the, on the context, you know, whether you need to defend, like if you're some false teacher or whatever, I get it that, you know, you might have to have a more vibrant conversation, more of a confrontation. I get that. Um, but for the most part, most conversations, man, we need to just reveal the Father. Bob George said this, Jesus did not live, die, and rise in order for you to defend a set of ideals, principles, or beliefs. He never defended the gospel. He revealed it. And he says this, Jesus had one mandate, and that was to reveal the Father. And in John 14, I'm going to read John 14, 1 uh, through about verse 8 or 9, um, there's a story that always makes me laugh every time I read this, because I, and I want you to just try to picture the scene with Jesus and a couple of his disciples. Here's Jesus right before he goes to the cross, and he says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father has many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Verse 4, listen to this. You know the way to the place where I am going. So Jesus says, man, you know the place I'm going. But here's Thomas. Character number one, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. If you know me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you don't know him. Or excuse me, you don't know him. You do know him and have seen him. Insert character number two, Philip. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. So he's, he doesn't get it. They still, they're not getting it. He's telling them, like, if you know me, you know the Father. Just show us the Father. Oh, my gosh. Verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So do you see the mandate that Jesus has that he wants to reveal the Father? He wants to reveal the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who, does, who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So here you have Jesus basically saying, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've got two disciples that are just not getting it. You know, and I'm so, and I could just picture the reason I laugh because I'm like Jesus is probably just going, oh my gosh, I've been with you guys three years and you still don't understand. I came to reveal the Father. So God doesn't need to be defended, but His love does need to be revealed. And to be honest, and, and really, I think the best, especially in this cultural moment that we live in in our world with social media and everything cancel culture everything that's going on man just the bickering the fighting the backstabbing the just the evil man i i i think the best expression of the gospel is just man can we just love people 
Can we just start there by trying to reveal the Father's love to people around us? When we get comments made to us or about Christianity, instead of trying to have some knee-jerk reaction in defense, man, what if we were just to listen, hear them out, love on somebody, do something opposite of what our culture would say or expect? Man, our main responsibility as Christians is to reveal God's love. At least start there. Bare minimum is revealing God's love. Number four, you equate hardship with holiness. You You equate hardship with holiness. The verse in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus famously says, hey, take up your cross and follow me, is certainly an invitation to follow Jesus in every way. I get that. There's, there's suffering. Jesus said, man, if you follow me, you will suffer. There will be persecution. And so to take up our cross and identify with Jesus, man, we're going to endure suffering. There's going to be pain. And I get that. But it doesn't mean that we self-inflict pain or painful ideas upon ourselves to think that we, that's going to make us more holy. Okay? The suffering and death were not the main point of the gospel. It's the resurrection. It's the other side of the cross that we're to live for. Like we celebrate Good Friday, thankful for what Jesus did, but we don't stay there. We live on the side of resurrection. So take up your cross is not a celebration of suffering with Jesus. It's an invitation to live in the power of the resurrection. We don't stay in suffering. And and what this can lead to, kind of having this, man, I'm going to self-inflict things on my life, can lead to kind of two examples. One is like having this poverty theology where I have a a roommate when I was uh, in college who got saved, and about six months in, he was just really, really zealous so he was just like, I don't need health insurance. I don't, I'm trusting the Lord. I don't need this stuff. And he, he was a big backpacker and camper and mountain climber, and he just gave all his stuff away, just gave it away. And like six months, a year later, he was like, man, that was dumb. That was, that was stupid. I love the outdoors. But he was, he was so caught up in like this poverty theology, didn't want people's money, didn't want this, didn't want, just like rejecting all kinds of help and just trying to like self-holiness himself, you know, and and, uh, and he just realized, like, man, I love the outdoors. Like, that's how I connect with God. That's, that's it's a good refresher and, and all this stuff. But he was just fell into kind of this poverty theology. And I'd been there, too, when I was younger. And he was just really zealous. You think this holiness movement about you is going to make you more holy or acceptable in God's eyes. And that's, that's not it. That's not it. I remember sharing the gospel one time. And um, the way I was sharing it, I was, I was all just like, this ho-hump, like it's hard, it's ugh. And I remember like halfway through sharing the gospel, I'm like, dude, if I'm this guy, I wouldn't want to follow Jesus. I wouldn't want to follow this God or listen to this gospel that you're preaching. It doesn't sound very joy. Like, you just, ooh, is what it sounded like. I remember halfway through, though, I'm like, dude, something's wrong. Like, why am I so downcast about the gospel? Why am I so downcast about the Christian life? Man, because I kind of started to associate like holiness with self-infliction of negative things upon yourself. 
That's going to make you more holy. And that's, that's not it. Now we're to live on the other side of resurrection. Last point, number five, you are trying harder instead of being transformed. You're trying harder instead of being transformed. You ready for a story? Here's a story. Every one of us has this person somewhere tucked in our mind. He's called the phantom Christian. You ready? An imaginary person that many of us are continually comparing ourselves to. He or she is super spiritual who gets up every morning at 4 a.m. so he can pray for four hours, then read his Bible for four hours. He goes to work where he effectively shares Jesus with everyone in his office. He teaches several Bible studies, goes to church every time the doors are open, and serves on several committees. He is also a wonderful spiritual leader at home, a sterling example of a loving husband and father who leads his stimulating family devotions every day for his Proverbs 31 wife and his perfect kids. Even though we know this person doesn't exist, that's our standard. At some level, it could be honestly a tenth of that. And we have that, and, and we feel like a failure. Even if you're like, well, Scott, four hours and four, four hours of praying, four hours of reading, like, I get it, that's a fandom. Even if you're to say, well, I'll just knock that down by a tenth of everything, that person still probably doesn't exist. Okay? So if you were to follow me throughout the week, this is because I'm up here speaking. If you were to follow me through the week and my spiritual rhythms and what I do and don't do, what I think I should do and don't do at the end of the day, you'd probably think, you're in the ministry? Oh, man, there's hope for me. Vulnerability, I didn't share this last, just give you a small example. This might bring some comfort to some of you. I didn't share this at the, the, the first service. But like this weekend, I was gone over the weekend helping my brother-in-law in Central Oregon. I didn't read my Bible for two days. I listened to secular music all day on Saturday as we were building a house. Yesterday, just to earn brownie points, I said, hey, let's listen to some Christian music. That's a joke. I didn't, it was no brownie points. We did listen to Christian music. But, you know, that, that's what we can do. We have this tendency to compare ourselves to somebody, some standard that really doesn't exist. At least I haven't found that person, but this is a standard that we hold ourselves to. And for this person, this is really, I think, really foundational, really important. During the first service, I've just felt like, man, this is a big one for some people. For this person that kind of holds yourself to some phantom Christian or somebody, even just somebody that may be around you that you look up to, for this person, um, they know that God, you might know that God loves you, like, you know that up here. We celebrate communion every week. We talk about God's love. You might know that God loves you, but you really would have a hard time accepting the fact that God actually accepts you. Ooh. Yeah, God loves me. Do you know that he accepts you? And there might be like, a, well, yeah, he accepts probably this part of me, but not sure about this part. And I shared this last week that in my family growing up, my dad would never allow me to say but. Like if I was, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, but he did that. You know, he'd be like, no, no buts in this family, no excuses. And I think that's what we tend to do. When I ask that question, you'd say, oh, I think God accepts 
maybe this part, he accepts this part of my life or my, but he doesn't probably accept this bad habit I have or this sin issue or this, my temper, my anxiety. And that's where you have to realize, man, the scandalous, unconditional love of God and the scandalous grace of God says, man, I accept the whole person. And even in my mind, I might be like, yeah, but th- does he accept the sin? Like, he doesn't want the sin, but he accepts you. He loves you and accepts you into the family of God. And so maybe for you this morning, it's really wrestling with the fact that, yeah, man, I know God loves me, but I'm just not sure if he likes me. He likes you. One reason I know that is because when I, I've worked with college students for 20 plus years. And my love grows more for the, you know, the quote unquote sinner than it does for the person who has it all together. And that's not saying anything really bad. I'm not saying anything bad about that person who's kind of got it together and has been Christian doing well. But man, my heart longs for that person who's a new Christian and stumbling and fumbling through those first few years of life as they come back and be like dude I, I blew it I need to meet with you what happened I just I went out and partied this weekend I got drunk I did this I did XYZ man uh, my reaction every time is just hug just come back come here bring it in and I just sense God's heart all over that And, and maybe that's you this morning, that, man, you just need to know that God, that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what excuses you might be making, that God just wants to mm, bring it in, give you a hug, hold you close. Bob George says this about acceptance. Apart from resting in the fact that his acceptance, his love, becomes practically meaningless and irrelevant in daily living. Because if you don't know that God accepts you, how are you going to know that he actually loves you unconditionally? You have to know that he accepts you. So feelings of spiritual inadequacy are often the evidence that you may have a misunderstanding of his, his acceptance. So again, I could use that same phrase where Jesus didn't live, die, rise again so you could try harder. It's not why he came. It's not why he came. You think about Jesus and when he was baptized, and I know we can always use the excuse that when he was baptized, he went under, he came out, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? We can use the excuse of like, well, yeah, it's Jesus, God's son. Still doesn't change the fact that he hadn't done anything yet. And if we're co-heirs with Christ, we're sons and daughters, the same righteousness that Jesus has is the same righteousness that God looks at us. The man, he can speak that over our life. And he's well pleased. This is my beloved son or daughter, but I'm well pleased. So to close, I will say this on the other side, okay? Is that discipline of principles are important, right? So it's not just this Hey, I don't, I, I just, I sit, I do nothing, and I grow. That, that's, that's just not going to happen. 
Um, so I'll finish with Dallas Willard quote. Can't go wrong with Dallas Willard. And he said this. You might have heard it before because it's kind of a famous quote. He said, God's grace, so everything I just talked about with earning or trying harder, God's grace, this phantom Christian, God's grace is opposed to earning. Okay, God's grace is opposed to you earning anything from God. That could sum up everything I just said. But God's grace is not opposed to effort, meaning you do need to spend time with Jesus, right? I do need to read my Bible if I want to get to know this God. I do need to pray. I do need to, at least for me, go on walks and reflection, talk to God, build intimacy, read books, do the, you know, the spiritual practices that develop a relationship. So I don't want to say that, man, you just don't do it. But it's not earning. You're not earning anything. I don't earn anything from that. So even this morning, I get up at 6.30, I go to the, this space, prayer room, above Subway, I just go through my notes again, then I spend about 30 minutes, 45 minutes in worship and prayer, and even during that time, I am tempted to do this. I'm tempted to sit there and like, pray harder, or like, pray enough, and, or start to analyze, oh, did I study enough? Did I pray enough? And I just start going through these thoughts in my head that is basically this, am I trying harder? Instead of just like, hey, rest, the work's been done. Huh, I'm just going to sit here on this couch, listen to some worship, drive over to the church, and trust the Lord that he's guiding me. 